You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to the Leadline Podcast, the show where we believe that running your own horse business should feel less like a chore and more like the life you've always dreamed of. Join us as we share valuable advice on how to become more focused, more organized, and more profitable in your horse business. And now, here's your host, Mandy Flanders. Hey, welcome back to the Leadline Podcast. I'm your host, Mandy, and today we're talking with guest Sierra Seidner of Iron Horse Animal Health Products. Sierra acquired her business back in 2021 from an elderly gentleman who had founded the company in 1967. She'd had her eye on the brand for a while, knowing that the owner was probably getting ready to retire soon. So one day, she decided to shoot her shot and see if he'd be interested in selling. Well, the owner said yes. So in today's episode, we're going to uncover the inner workings of that deal and how Sierra and her husband were able to successfully purchase this already established horse business. She's also going to enlighten us about a surprising discovery she made about her acquired customer base and why it's so important to hone in on your target audience. They may not always be who you think they are. Here's Sierra Seidner. Hi, Sierra. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Mandy. I'm glad to be here. Glad to talk to you again. It's been a crazy, busy holiday season. I've had uh, one other episode that came out prior to yours, but the podcast one was, was on a little bit of a break. You're officially my first guest of the year for 2023, so congratulations, and I'm excited that it's you. Oh, I didn't realize I was the first one of the year, so that's super exciting and makes me even more excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you are. So we're going to talk a little bit about your business, which is Iron Horse Animal Health Products. And we're going to dig into a couple of different topics today, one of which being that you bought this company in 2021. So you and your husband now own the business, but you acquired it from someone else. And so I want to first start out by hearing a little bit about why you decided to purchase this business and how that all unfolded. Yeah. So I kind of got my foot in the door with this business because uh, Dr. Sweeney, who had started it, he's a retired veterinarian. I helped train his racehorses and his farm is where I have my horse, Tim, stabled. Um, He's got a nice training track and he's now 85. He has no kids. So that kind of like always put it in my mind, like if he ever wanted to sell this or have somebody take over that I think I would be a good fit. It was right after we got married. So we got married November 2020. So it was sometime after then that I wasn't really happy at my job in the accounting world, just sitting at a desk all day. So I told my husband, Ben, like, hey, you know, I think we should talk to Doc and see if he would be willing to like sell the business to us or let us take over. We can make some kind of arrangement there. And we ended up approaching him and it was kind of a long process, but it ended up being July 2021 when we actually took over the business of ourselves. And it was a really great experience because, like I said, he didn't have any kids and he really didn't want to just have to shut the business down. So um, there's a lot of people out there, I think, who are in about the same situation as him where they don't have kids or family or they just don't have any family or kids that are interested in taking over the business and they've worked so long They've worked their whole lives on this that they don't just want to shut it down. So they're willing to work with people and um, actually sell off their business. Well, it sounds like you had your eye on the business for a while. So had there ever been any talk of him selling that kind of put that bug in your ear? Yeah, he had kind of talked to a 
few other people and he had had some people ask him along the way and it was just kind of like he'd give him a vague response because that was kind of the person he is like oh I don't know maybe you know I'll let you know just something like that so I was just always aware of that and like I said I finally ended up approaching him like hey do you want to sell this and I'm sure he felt more comfortable with me taking over somebody who had more inside information on the business and him personally so that's just kind of how it worked out Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think sometimes there are business owners that are in a similar situation who are interested maybe more in selling it to someone that they already know because your business really becomes your baby over the years, right? And so that's really interesting that he ended up wanting to sell to you. So was there a relationship there that you felt made a difference? Do you think if someone else had approached him with maybe even a better offer that he would have taken that money? Or do you think it was the relationship that really got you that deal? I definitely think it was their relationship. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who could have offered them a lot more. And that's kind of one thing where people don't realize when they hear of acquiring or buying a business, they think, oh my God, that just costs so much money. But like I said, a lot of people are just willing to work out deals just so that it doesn't get shut down and they have to close the doors on it when they work so hard. And we actually did a thing, basically a seller finance deal. So we just put down a little bit of money and then you know we work with him basically through royalty payments to pay up the rest of the business. So it's super affordable. It's not as expensive or intimidating as a lot of people probably think it is. Well, it sounds like you also brought a lot of creativity to that deal. So let's kind of unpack that a little bit because that's probably a place where people could use a little bit of help. So when you went to craft that deal, first and foremost, had you ever done anything like that before? No, never. I've never done a business deal to that magnitude kind of listened into some of the stuff at my other jobs in the corporate world, but never actually done one myself. So how did you learn how to put this offer together and then get it on paper? (laughs) Honestly, I just kind of spitballed it to him through casual conversations. You know, I felt out, you know, what he, you know, we kind of just rough guesses of figures of what the business is making. And I think probably a good rule of thumb, if you're going to offer somebody, you want to figure out what it's profiting and offer them at least a year's worth of profit over some terms. Like I said, it was seller finance. So we obviously didn't pay that all at once. But like I said, it was just more of a spitball casual conversation with him than I think it would be with a lot of other people. And it really worked out to the best. And to actually put the agreement together, I didn't even hire a lawyer. I did it myself. I used, um, I think it was Rocket Lawyer online. And we had quite a few drafts of the initial agreement. And then at the end of it, we settled on one and we signed it and that was it. Wow. Great example of DIY. (laughs) I love that you did that, Sierra. When you made the offer, did you throw a number at him right away or did you have to kind of get an idea of what the business workings looked like from an insider view before you came up with that amount? I kind of, like I said, I was in accounting, so I kind of got um, more of an inside view. I wanted to see the books and I wanted to see, I knew how they processed and manufactured everything just from being around, not that I worked directly with it that much. But as far as the books, I weren't as, I wasn't as familiar in that area. And I really just took a good dive into there to see what it was doing. I'm not a super creative person. Like my mom will tell you my projects in high school, like the aesthetic look of some of the posters I did was just horrible, but but the content was really good and was really there. So I'm like a business strategy, more analytical type person. So that's um, a lot of what I bring to the table here. And I kind of looked at everything. And what really stood out with me is um, you look at some of the stuff that they were doing and it's like, 
well, there's a better way to do this. I think that we could increase profit margins a lot just doing things differently. So that was especially really attractive to me with this business. And like I said, Doc is 83 at the time. And it's not that they had given up or anything. It's just that they were stuck in their ways. And they were like, well, this is how we've always done it. This is how we're going to continue to do it. So just as far as things were sourcing materials from different suppliers and then redoing the packaging was a thing that was really good for us because it was just so ugly before in a clear bag and a basic bright green label. And now we have nicely printed bags. I did not design them, but I had a designer work with me to do that. (laughs) I love that. Well, it sounds like you went in with a plan because you saw the potential. So other than the things you just mentioned, what were some of the things that you knew that you had to change immediately when you acquired the business? Definitely customer service because as I mentioned, again, they were older and it seemed like they had kind of slacked off. And I think like every business, if your customer service isn't like you, line when somebody calls and somebody immediately picks up the phone and helps you, um, you can always improve your customer service. People would order and they would just take their time getting them the orders, you know, everybody be, and it typically happens a lot, especially with our customers. They call you when they're out. They don't call you when they have like two weeks worth. They're like, oh, you know, we're out. We we got some orders. We have people coming in looking for this and we don't have any. Can you get it to us now? It's like, well, probably not possible, but they kind of took it to the next extreme where it'd be like, instead of like getting it in a couple days, it was like a couple weeks before they could get something to them. And that was a big thing right off the bat. And that's one of the things I think was good that we did immediately is we got out and we talked to all of the customers that the business had. And that's the great thing that you get when you buy a business is the existing customer base of a proven product. So you really want to get out and talk to the customers. You want to get everything that they like. You want to hear their complaints of things that could do better. And that's a really good place to start with where you can improve the business is before you do anything, I would just talk to the customers and see how they feel about things. Well, speaking of customers, I know that one of the things that you've mentioned to me previously is that you found a very surprising customer base and a surprising audience as you acquired this business. So I'd love to dig into that a little bit. What were some of your key learnings with the customers as you started to do your research? Yeah. So um, most of our customers are actually Amish. So we do a lot of wholesale, a very small percentage of our sales is retail and they're Amish tax stores who carry our stuff. I would say about 80% of them are. And it's been interesting dealing with them. When I first took over the business, it was kind of a shock to them because like I'm a woman and they don't look at women the same way, like women in their society don't run businesses. So I'd like drive up there with this big giant box truck and two tons of supplements on the back, like, hey, got your order. And they'd be like, whoa, who are you? You know, <laughs> just, I love just, it. Com- just completely surprised that it was me delivering it. And then I own the business now. They're really cool to deal with. It's amazing to see their lifestyle, how simply they do everything. It's just amazing because our shop where we manufacture everything in our warehouse, it's actually like right in the middle of Amish country. So our neighbors, they have their phone in our warehouse and they have their freezer in our warehouse because they can't have it in their house. But it's okay if it's in our shop. But they're uh, they're really great. And one of the best things that we've done is market directly to them and print ads in their magazines. So they get magazines that are basically full of ads and they look through all the ads, which it kind of seems insane to us because, you know, you get an ad on YouTube or you see all the ads in our magazines um, and we just flip right through them. We don't even pay attention, but that's how they learn about new products is through these like business exchange magazines that are just full of ads. 
And, you know, there's still a little bit of content, but the majority of it is ads. And we have gotten so much response. And I think that everybody, especially in the horse world, no matter what you're doing, it's probably a good thing to look at running ads in some of their magazines, like the Busy Beaver Extreme or the Plain Communities Business Exchange, because whether you realize it or not, if you're doing marketing, if you're designing websites, there are so many Amish people out there who are looking to have a website of their own, but obviously they can't do it. Um, I hear it a lot that they pay people to do it. Like graphic design, they need brochures. A lot of them want brochures for their shops. They pretty much just go to the printer in town because nobody's marketing to them directly to build their website or to design their brochures. Um, nobody thinks of it. So, I can truly say that until you and I had a conversation about this, Sarah, that I had never considered marketing to Amish communities. I tr it's truly not even something that's crossed my radar. So when you mentioned that they were 80% of your customer base and that they're also looking to be marketed to in a way that suits them, obviously it's going to be different than it is for us, like you said. But that just kind of blows my mind because I'm like, wow, there's probably a big untapped market there. Yeah, there definitely is. And like I said, they're 80% of our retailers. So obviously some, they call us English people. So English people go in there, a lot of their shops and buy our products. But as far as the retailers, they're such good retailers because they buy a lot and they don't even think about it. And then they sell it all just through word of mouth through their community. And they see our ads and everything and word travels really fast through their community. So I think if you were a graphic designer and you're close, somewhat close to an Amish community, I know up there in New York, uh, where you are, Mandy, we have a lot of customers. If you just put an ad out there, you know, and you did a really good job with somebody, word would travel fast and everybody would be using you. That's just how they do in their communities is a lot of it's word of mouth and personal references. So, wow. So how did you figure out that this was such a big clientele base for you? Well, they were doing a lot of business with the Amish before we took over. So it wasn't exactly my idea, but we just kind of expanded on the advertising part of it because they did very little advertising before. No trade shows, hardly any print ads, you know, sponsorship or two if somebody asked, but that was about it. So the advertising part of it, I pretty much figured out on my own through basic Google search. Believe it or not, these Amish magazine companies have websites. So, you know, just depending on the community where you are, they have them out there. You just got to look and really seek them out to do this. And like I said, Amish were a big part of the business before. It's just we tapped into more of the marketing, the advertising part of it to actually directly market to them. That's amazing. What kind of horse businesses do you think would benefit by connecting with the Amish communities like you have? If you have products that can go in a tax store, that's a good place to market to the Amish communities. Because like I said, they have so many feed and tack stores out there. Uh, that's how we fit in really well with those communities is a lot of people like going to them because it's more of a personal experience and then to go into a big corporate store and then they do repairs. They do really good leather repairs in a lot of their stores. So that's why a lot of people like to go to them. So really any horse related products that you're selling, I would put an ad in the paper. And then as I mentioned before, if you're doing graphic design uh, for brochures or things like that, because people with farrier services just different services that they offer, different stores. They like to have brochures that pass out because obviously most Amish people aren't on the internet. And then marketing, website design, they don't do it themselves, but they like to know that they have a website to be put out there. So if you're a marketing person, if you're designing websites, I think, you know, give it a try, see what happens because 
the worst you can do is get no response and go, well, you know, that didn't work. We won't do it again, but it doesn't hurt to try. Uh, I just feel like I'm learning so much. My husband and I have even had this conversation before because you're right. We do live in um, a very heavily Amish populated area in upstate New York. And we've said, well, you know, what if we needed the Amish to help us maybe build a garage or a small barn or, you know, outbuilding of some sort, because they do a great job on that around here. And we aren't even really sure how to connect with them. But now I'm realizing they have their own network of places where I could go and probably find someone like like that or advertise for it. (laughs) It's crazy. So I, I just am so interested in hearing how this has all unfolded for you. Yeah. Like I said, they're they're big customers and all of them have horses. I mean, they travel by horse and buggy. So as you said, it's just such an overlooked clientele in the horse world. You know, they're not the biggest. Most of the Amish are in the Northeast, the Midwest, but there's still so many of them, you know, 10% of the horse world. If you're not tapping into that market, then I mean, you're really losing out if you're not advertising or at least exploring what opportunities you would have marketing to them. Absolutely. Well, going back to talking a little bit more about acquiring a pre-existing business, what would you say are some of the pros and cons of buying a business that's already been established? Definitely some of the pros is, like I said before, you're getting an existing customer base, which is crucial to um, when you're starting up, you're getting in income from the business through your existing customers. Um, and then they're also going to give you super good feedback on what can be done better is the most important thing that you want to get from them. And then you're also going to get the proven product. So it's like something you know that's successful and works most of the time. You know, there are some businesses who are somehow surviving that might not be the best purchase. But for the most part, like Iron Horse has been in business since 1967. If it's been in business that long, then it's a worthwhile company, I think, to invest in and take over and expand. We were recently interested in acquiring a different business based out of Wisconsin and can't say too much on the details of it, but um, we got pretty into the negotiations. And then at the end of it, we ended up just pulling out because we didn't think it would be a right fit for us. Just some of the things that he wanted in the contract and the needs of the business just didn't fit our skills. So that's kind of one of the things where you want to look for when you're actually wanting to acquire, look at it, just know your limitations, know what your skills are. That's going to help you a lot. You know, for me to take over a marketing business, it's just not going to happen because that's not my strong. As I had said before, that's not my strong suit, even though I dabble in it a little bit. It's just not a good fit for me. So just know that before you go into something. And and sometimes you don't really know if it's a good fit or not until you really get in and analyze and look at things. So it's just kind of hard to know right off the bat. And then um, some of the cons, like I said, customer base is a good thing to have that income that's going to come in, but it's also a bad thing because customers don't like when you change anything. Some of them are open, but a lot of them don't like when you change a thing. The first thing that usually people are going to ask you is, oh, are you going to raise prices? Which keep in mind, we took over and we really haven't raised the price on anything. We worked really hard on increasing the profit margins from like the bottom end rather than actually raising the price on the customers. So that was a good plus. I think that bought us a lot of brownie points with a lot of our customers is that we didn't just raise the prices as we worked on making our operations a lot more efficient and more cost effective rather than just raising the price. But customers are weary of change. They really are. So, and especially like I mentioned before, 
the bags were terrible when we first started. They were just clear plastic and they had an, just a bright green label on them with black writing. It wasn't, there was nothing aesthetically pleasing about that. <laughs> but when we switched over the bags, like they're 10 times better. They're a nice printed bag. Uh, it's got like metallic ink on it. So it really shines and stands out on the shelves. Some people didn't like that at first because the customers didn't realize that the bag had changed. So they couldn't find it on the shelves. But now people are really starting to realize and settle in and it's grabbing more people's eyes and they're getting more sales. But even things like that, that you think it's like, wow, this is such an improvement. The customers really will push back on that a little bit. It's like, well, they can't find it on the shelves anymore because it looks so much different. So just just things to keep in mind when you're really changing things to the business is you really want to analyze and look at everything before you make any drastic changes. That's a really good key learning from that too. Did you promote the packaging look to your customers when you made the change or did it just happen? It pretty much just happened. We had told them starting out that we were probably going to change the packaging. That was one of the things that we told them. And, you know, we waited about six months to do it. Like I said, we really wanted to meet all of our customers. We wanted to get a feel for what they think we could improve. And a lot of them did say that the packaging could improve. And then like I said, once it actually got into the stores, people were, you know, I heard a lot of people say individually to me, like, oh, I went to another store because I couldn't find it. And then I realized like, oh, the bag changed because it was such a drastic change. And it was, we kind of basically went through a rebranding phase because the company had been the same since essentially 1967 when it was started, the same logo, the same ugly packaging and everything. So it's just, I think it's more of a shock factor when something like that changes and People don't look for it, even though, you know, our hoof and sole product, our best selling horse supplement says right on the bag, really big hoof and sole. It's just not what people are used to looking for in the stores when they go to look for it. So, yeah, that's a really smart observation. I'm sure stuff like that does take some time to catch on. I know when I send my husband to the grocery store and I tell him to buy something, I'm like, go to this aisle and look for this collar. <laughs> so if the packaging changes, we're both screwed because he's not going to find it. <laughs> Yeah, men are the worst at finding anything. I find that with with Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Ben, what are some of your different roles and responsibilities that each of you have within the business? So it's pretty much mostly me. I handle all the administrative tasks, all the business strategy, the book work, everything like that. I do a lot of the manufacturing myself. Obviously, I do the sales by myself. I'm the one who's on the road talking to the customers. Ben works full-time. He works for a company based out of Texas. So he is remote at home. So he is able to help on occasion, usually with the manufacturing part. But as far as actually getting out there, because I'm on the road a lot, just traveling to different customers because we have so many up in New York. And then I go to different trade shows and just things like that. When you work a full-time job, it's not super flexible. So we do try sometimes to schedule trips on like a Saturday when he can go. Because as I mentioned before, when you're working with the Amish, if you're a woman, it's like they tone you out sometimes. So it's harder to get a good response from them. But when Ben comes with me, they'll immediately talk to him and, you know, they just open up their mind a lot more actually talking to a guy than a woman. So it's just that's just something to keep in mind. And it's not that they're doing it to be um, ignorant or anything like that. It's just how their society is. So, you know, when they want to do a business deal, they typically deal with a man. So he, he's been uh, very crucial with that. And he's definitely a better negotiator than I am. <laughs> so like I mentioned, mentioned the other business that we were looking at acquiring, he did a lot of the negotiations and dove into that. 
it's just not one of my strong parts negotiating with people. So he's definitely key in that. Well, it's so funny that I'm sure it's frustrating for you going in as a woman and seeing that, you know, they want to deal with your husband instead when really you're the one running most of the business. <laughs> but it's also smart that you recognize that, you know, I think that could frustrate some women to the point where they wouldn't want to deal with clients that felt that way. But in your case, you're like, well, they're 80% of my business. So I'm just going to bring my own husband <laughs> and do the deal. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely, definitely, like I said, it's a strong suit that I, I'm aware of that. And if I wasn't aware of it, it would make my life a lot harder for sure. I'll go talk to them. And most of the bigger customers, especially now that we've done this for almost two years, they're a lot more comfortable now dealing with me. They realize it, but just, it was more of a struggle at the beginning because it was just, they were so um, surprised going from dealing with these uh, 80 year old guys to then me, a 25 year old woman. A lot of my comments or suggestions or things like that would just more or less fall on deaf ears because it's like, oh, I'm a girl. What do I know? But it's definitely a lot better. I can say that. So out of curiosity, did you lose any business with them just simply because you're a woman? No, I don't think so. We have lost a couple customers because they either moved to a different area or they closed down their shop for one reason or another. But pretty much all of them kept continuing on with us. And some of the customers that have ended up moving or closing down. It's been recent. So, you know, they had dealt with me for quite a while. And I think now in sales too, they're a little bit more used to seeing women in sales. A lot of sales company, they have the women uh, that come out. So it's not super surprising. Good. Well, that's also a testament to your product too, that it's working, it's doing its job and they're going to keep you around because you have a good product. Yeah. The hoof and soul, as I mentioned before, it's our top seller and people love it because you know, you get the results. And I pride myself a lot on putting a lot of quality into the products. So that's what I love when we took over, we brought a lot more manufacturing in house. So now I'm like, really a stickler into making sure everything is done perfectly. The recipes followed to a T, you know, no shortcuts, nothing like that. And it works. So, you know, people keep buying our hoof and soul. Like I said, the Conditioner came out in 1967. The Hoof and Soul has been around since 1990. And we just get so many good feedback constantly of people who are like, oh, well, we tried all these other products, nothing worked. And then we tried yours and, you know, yours is half the cost and it just works so much better. So that's just kind of the things you live for as a business person is those wins of people really standing up and promoting your product for you because it works that well. Mm, that's amazing. Well, you are a very smart businesswoman, Sierra. I love hearing of how you bought this business and how you've tapped into such a great customer base with the Amish and I'm sure other customers too. What kind of advice would you have for someone who maybe is looking at purchasing an existing business or maybe they're like, hey, I could actually get tapped in with the Amish community as well. So any advice around either of those two topics? Yeah, so purchasing a business, biggest thing is go with your gut like I mentioned before, you want to get something that's a good fit for you. Don't just buy something because it's a successful business. Because even if it's successful right now, if it's not a good fit for you, it can fail. You know, don't think that buying a business, it's just, you know, you're going to walk right in there and make a bunch because it's it's doing well now. Just make sure it's a really good fit for you. It's like I said, all the needs of the business fit your skills is the number one thing. And then like right now with the economy kind of going into a downturn, I think there's probably going to be a lot of people looking to get out, um, maybe local feed stores, local tax shops who are just like, yeah, I've done this for a while. You know, my time's up, you know, let's let the next person take over. So just 
just keep your eyes and ears open for somebody who might be interested in selling and don't be afraid to ask if you see a business who would you would be interested in. And, you know, it's not always older guys, you know, people move, have families, things like that, and might look to get out of the business. So just always be on the lookout for those opportunities. And as I mentioned before, it's usually not as expensive as uh, you think it would be to buy one. So a lot of people, if they want to get out and want to see the business continue, they'll work out a pretty good deal for you. And then as far as working with the Amish, Definitely market in print. Like I said, there's tons of different magazines. They have community-specific magazines, papers, if you're pretty close to a community. Um, and then they also have like nationwide magazines uh, that they advertise in. Put yourself out there and see how it goes. Like I said, it doesn't hurt to try it once and see if you get responses. I mean, we never thought that we would get the response that we did from them, but I can say that it was definitely worthwhile to just test it out and see, spend a couple hundred bucks, put a small ad in a magazine. They have so many horses. They have so many animals. They're such such a big market uh, that people are missing, a big part of the market. So don't be afraid to just try it and see what happens. Great advice. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Sierra. It's been great having you here on the podcast today, and I'm excited to see where things go for you. I know that you're still in the first couple of years of owning this business, but you're doing great things. So I'm very confident that we'll continue to see you just continue to grow and grow. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Mandy. It was good talking to you and I hope to see you again. I'm sure we will at some other trade show somewhere. (laughs) Oh, for sure. So if anyone wants to connect with you, where can they find you online? Our website is harnessironhorse.com that has all of our products and, you know, a little more about our company. And then our Facebook page uh, that we're most frequently active on is Iron Horse Animal Health Products. You could just look us up or like us, follow us. Uh, We're trying to build our online base because before when we took over the company, they had zero online social media presence. So that's kind of a new thing for the company. Oh, exciting. Well, we will be sure to link that in the show notes. So folks, if you're tuning in, be sure to check out Sierra's Facebook page, give them a like and pass it along to anyone you think might be a good fit. So thanks again for being here, Sierra. It's been great catching up with you and I'm excited to see what comes next. All right. Thank you, Mandy. I enjoyed being here so much. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you're a horse business owner or equestrian professional, I'd love to invite you to continue the conversation in our free online community just for you. The Leadline Facebook community is a great space to network, get advice, and even recommend guests you'd like to hear on future episodes of the show. You can become a member by visiting theleadlinepodcast.com slash group. That's theleadlinepodcast.com slash group. And join the conversation today. I'm Mandy, and I'll see you next time.